Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Lonely, I'm Mr. Lonely, I have nobody for my own. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Michael Snydell. There's no air in here. There's no air in here. <laughs> That's a saying. People say that. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> that works better in my head. It's all right. <laughs> and a special guest with us today, we have Carrie, <laughs> Carrie Corrigan. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, The usual issues and frustrations that go along with this whole modern life that we have, but otherwise I'm doing fine. Would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Um, So I am trying to think like what to lead with because I do many different disconnected things. Um, I think primarily I'm um, a culture writer and editor, um, freelance, and I am an associate editor at uh, the film journal Bright Wall Dark Room. All right. Excellent. And you are here today to help us talk about the film from 1976, Mikey and Nikki, uh, from writer-director Elaine May. Um, it, it, I, I just up front, this is a dumb anecdote, but I had trouble finding this movie because I looked for it on uh, Roku. And for whatever reason, Mikey and Nikki only came up as having come out in 2001. Interesting. I, I don't know why that is. <laughs> I don't know if there was like a release then or what, but I was like, well, it can't be that. I know it's not that one, but it was. Um, Anyway, we will it's get like to that. It's like a Farley remake of it, like Heartbreak Kid. <laughs> I was oh, really God. worried about that. I was like, oh, God. Oh, please, no. That's going to live, live rent in my brain now. <laughs> please don't do this. One of the best things about this show is the way that it can just destroy things that you love and implant ideas in your brain that will never get out. Um, uh, yeah, so that's welcome. <laughs> Now that I've put us up that way. Um, what else? Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show, uh, emails, podcast, filmstage.com. And of course, you become a patron of this podcast by going to patreon.com slash The Film Stage Show. We are also brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service which showcases exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film. Uh, it could be a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece. It is Either way, guaranteed to be a movie that even if you haven't heard about it, you are bound to love. They've got some cool stuff coming to the platform. Uh, I really want to highlight the fact that their special Tinto Brasses Deadly Attractions and Sinful Desires series is beginning. And uh, I'm just going to I'm just going to read this. It sounds awesome. From his infamous fetishes and outrageous forays into period dramas to his provocative adaptation of the Nazi exploitation subgenre, Tinto's softcore skin flicks return to common themes of betrayal, subterfuge, sinful sexual transgressions, and sexual liberation, and have been shredded up by censors so many times it would make your head spin. They've got 
a couple titles. Uh, I want to highlight this one purely because of the title. It is Salon Kitty. It is from 1976, so it also ties in with Mikey and Nikki. Depraved, decadent, damned, another progenitor of the cult 1970s Italian Nazi exploitation genre. Tinto Brass's Salon Kitty is a true story transformed into an outrageously transgressive erotica featuring the legend of European cinema Helmut Berger. So feel free to indulge in a 30-day subscription of movie so that you can lay your eyes on that madness. All you got to do is go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, it is mubi.com slash filmstage. I just want to say that I I had not heard of uh, Tinto Brass until this collection. And I, of course, asked Scout Tafoya, previous guest, who knows about every movie that exists. And he, of course, had seen every single film in the collection and directed me towards Salon Kitty. So if you want a a recommendation, apparently Brian picked the good one. I mean, it's just got, the other one is just deadly sweet, which is like, sure, fine. But it's nothing on the name Salon Kitty. I mean, that's just how do you get over that? <laughs> also, it's the Nazi exploitation uh, one, which sure. is sure. I love that there has to be a name for that as a genre. But anyway, uh, that's it. Uh, now is the time in our podcast where we briefly talk about how our lives are going during this uh, crazy situation that we didn't assume would last this long. It's time for our COVID quarantine corner. Michael Snydell, how you doing? Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing all right. I, I will say one thing that's not great is today uh, the Chicago mayor announced that bars are going to start serving inside again and restaurants and a number of other establishments. The maximum occupancy has been raised from 25 to 40%. But the silver lining on that is they are now selling alcohol until 1 1 a.m. instead of 9 (laughs) p.m. Good. So, you know, I got to find something there that's not all bad. So if you just owned a distillery like I do, you wouldn't even have to worry about when they stop serving alcohol. You know what? You're right. (laughs) Something to aspire to. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, Carrie Corgan, how about yourself? Anything uh, interesting, exciting? How has quarantine been treating you? Um, I mean, it's okay. I feel like it's definitely... I saw a meme that was like, quarantine is like three weeks. Three we- oh, okay, I've adjusted to this. This is my new normal. Fine. And then you just have one week that's like, you don't know when it's coming. It's like, not even on a set schedule where you just dip into the absolute hellscape of like emotions and oh my god I'm never gonna get out of this and it's kind of the whole ride has been like that for me like the second I saw it I was like oh yes that's it that's it like (laughs) you just don't know when the hellscape is gonna hit and then it does I mean it's been a minute so I'm like it's gonna come any day now (laughs) like waiting for the quarantine depression to catch up with the onset of, of seasonal effective depression, like it's going to be a wild, wild fall. I can't wait. <laughs> that sounds utterly terrible. And I'm sorry that that's <laughs> how you're doing. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like otherwise. I mean, it's it's ups and downs and the ups are like, oh, it's 
it's normal now. I mean, I'm in New York, so it's kind of like I feel like everyone here has, for the most part, adjusted. And I don't I mean, I have family in the suburbs and, and in rural areas who just it's still like an effort effort to people to wear their masks. So it feels pretty OK, Matt. And and I have to be grateful for that. Oh, boy. As for myself, um, I uh, I had to take my dog to the vet, which is, you can imagine, t- during quarantine pandemic stuff is not fun and uh, not easy. And going to the vet is not fun or easy to begin with. So that's a pain in the ass. Um, yeah, she, she has a hematoma on her ear. It's not, like, bad or life-threatening, but it's definitely not something that you want on your ear. <laughs> And um, so I had to take her to the vet. I was sitting there in the car and uh, just like it was it was so annoying because I had to just go with her in the car and then sit in the car. And then a nurse came out and got her. And then I had to just keep sitting in the car until they eventually gave her back. And it was like a five hour (laughs) ordeal of just me sitting in my car, just like uncertain of what to do. And um, so she might need surgery and I say might because they are supposed to call me back and they haven't yet. And I've called them every day since then. And they keep going like, oh, yeah, the doctor has to look at her stuff and give you an estimate. And so we'll call you back. And I'm like, okay. You know, it's annoying. Um, I, I love my dog more than I love, I would say, almost literally everyone on the planet. So I uh I'm just like I, not your daughter. I, I hope <laughs> right, that's why I said almost literally everyone <laughs> okay. on the planet. If you were to come Gosh. into my house right now, <clears throat> that was not for effect. That was me actually clearing my throat. Sure. <laughs> if you were to come into my house right now, uh, I have hung a bunch of pictures up and it occurred to me as I began walking from room to room just to see the work that I had done, that my pictures hanging in my house are an even split between pictures of my daughter and pictures of my dog. <laughs> With like, that's the big ones. Some of the little ones, it's like my street work, you know, like there's a few beachscapes, but like the big portrait looking ones are almost all my daughter or my dog or my daughter and my dog. (laughs) And um, so that's just, that gives you an idea of uh, what's most important in my life. And so if my dog has a hematoma on her ear, I need to get that fixed. (sighs) It's just like when I had to go to the hospital when my daughter put a battery up her nose. Oh my god! <laughs> That's right. You were you were in here for that. Long story short is she comes into my room, Daddy. I put a battery at my nose. Oh my god! Why did you do that? She said she doesn't know. I take her to the hospital. We're waiting <laughs> in the waiting room, wearing our masks, and I tell her we can't leave until the battery's out of your nose because she keeps asking when we can leave. And then um, she starts sneezing a lot, like ten sneezes in a row, and then says, "It's gone. We can go." because she had sneezed the battery out of her nose but i still had to pay the entry fee or whatever you call it for the for the emergency room visit anyway so that's yeah going going to medical places in the middle of the pandemic sucks i'll just say that but anyway uh talking about other stuff that sucks um what if you believed that the mob was trying to kill you And the only person that you could get to help you uh, is your childhood friend. That is the uh, quandary post by Mikey and Nikki, the 1976 film from writer director director Elaine May. 
Uh, this movie stars Peter Falk, John Cassavetes, and Ned Beatty. And um, it is currently playing on Tubi TV. That's where I watched it. Where did y'all watch this movie? I, um, I watched it on Criterion Channel. Oh, okay. It's on Criterion Channel? Y- yeah. yeah. I think that's the first. I'm pretty sure that's the first place I saw it, too. I hate Roku. I want to like, first of all, there's the fact that Roku's like in a, in a staring contest with all the cool new streaming services. And then there's the fact that I looked up on their app, like, where can I watch Mike and Nikki? And it was like Tubi and that's it. Motherfucker. For some reason, the search on Roku doesn't ever show me the criterion channel options. God. It's like you have to know that it's on there or like search on your computer, but it's it's done me dirty that way, too. So, yeah, because I had to watch Mikey and Nikki cut up with random commercial breaks <laughs> for diapers, some sort of <laughs> business to client web service, three different As kinds of cars. <laughs> you should have just asked <laughs> I had to watch the movie. I didn't know. Like, you know, I just, I just, I was like, there it is. I'll watch it. It's fine. Anyway. I mean, just the irony of that and like the whole, I'm sure we'll get into it later. Just the irony of like the whole pissing contest about like, who's going to have the final cut of this. And then like people are watching a cut that's broken up with commercials. It's just like... (laughs) It's just kiss of irony. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, it, it does remind me of when I was a child and I saw most of my movies on TV. And so for like the longest time, the Shawshank Redemption, like I saw it like six times, but every time it was just on TNT. <laughs> oh, God, I'm like, I'm furious right now that it's on the Criterion <laughs> channel and I didn't know. Oh, God. Anyway, uh, before we get into talking about it, here is the trailer. Peter Falk is Mikey. I got a terrific suggestion for you, Nick. I suggest you find somebody you can trust. John Cassavetes is Nicky. They're going to kill me, Nick. They're going to kill me. Mikey and Nicky. On a night like this, there are no rules. All right. Dig that synth. Uh, that is the trailer for Mikey and Nikki. Uh, again, written and directed by Elaine May. We're here to talk about it. This is a classic episode, so there will be no spoiler section. So uh, let's just uh, dive right in to our basic thoughts and see where they take us. Gary, what are your thoughts on Mikey and Nikki? Well, I mean, I think my first question is how much backstory did both of you come into it with? And like, did you think it was a comedy before you started watching it? Or how did you approach it? <laughs> I, uh, I also like, that's a great question. I, um, I did not think this was a comedy. Uh, I, my backstory for this was Michael Snydell pitching it as our classic review. And he said, it's a guy who thinks the mob is going to kill him. And he asked his childhood friend to come and help him. <laughs> it's right up your alley and i think i said something like yeah i have like three friends where that was probably like what's gonna happen with us (laughs) (laughs) 
So I didn't think it was a comedy. I, I was pretty certain out of the gate that it had to be some kind of drama. <laughs> Michael, did you did you come into this thing it was a comedy? <laughs> I, I kind of. So this is embarrassingly my first Elaine May directed film. She's someone who I'd been told to watch her things for a long time. And um, I mean, it should be said a few of her films are. I mean, Ishtar shows up on HBO every once in a while randomly. And um, I believe it's uh, a New Leaf and Heartbreak Kid show up on TCM every once in a while. Uh, but there's like a lot of rights issues that don't make it super easy to see sometimes. But that's I, – I digress. Um, yeah, I, I kind of knew this was going to be uh, – devastating at a certain point but i knew it was gonna have like very unlikable people constantly like insulting each other and like i I don't know i kind of had a sense what this was but then in practice it worked much differently than i expected and like i'll just say man a lot of movies after this stole from this movie (laughs) like (laughs) wow (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's partly like a privilege that we have going into it now with hindsight and that there's information readily available about it. But it's it's fascinating to me to read stuff about when it was made. And like as Elaine May is primarily not that time, she, she was primarily known as a comedian and like this isn't isn't an outlier in in her canon and that it's the one like actually really dark film and it's has moments of levity and comedic relief but like it's not a comedy and everyone who was green lighting it and like going to see it and covering it in the press they were all like oh yeah it's Elaine May it's a comedy and then they show up and watch <laughs> oh right this is you, oh you, I heard Elaine May and I was like oh you know it's 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 Elaine May <laughs> of Nichols and May like it's there's and <laughs> It just felt like, yeah, it should be kind of, and then, but I, like, again, I had, I guess, Michael Snydell looking out for me because he tells me the, uh, the, uh, the, the sub, the, the subterfuge, that's not what I'm looking for. The synopsis. <laughs> I've had a very long couple of years, so sometimes <laughs> I slip up my verbiage. Um, but he told me that and I was like, I guess that could be funny, but that really does sound like a very dark movie. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I can imagine that this would have been a shock. I, I will say that as far as background on the production of this, I have like very little. I, I have basically what it was, what I read on Wikipedia, um, because I tried to go into it as cold as possible and then just didn't have enough time to do, uh, further reading. So hopefully we can, uh, we can get more into that because from what I've, for just like the very little that I've read, it sounds like it was insane. It was an absolute shit show. Like the myth, I feel like the myth of the movie is a movie in and of itself. Like the, just the making of the movie. It's like, I mean, first of all, the fact that they even let her make this movie is kind of crazy because with a new leaf, it had gone way over budget, way over the timeline. And Paramount was really, really like, oh god this is a nightmare what did we get ourselves into but it made just enough money that they then had her do the heartbreak kid and then i feel like with that one it was dealing with like not dealing with the way neil simon works like it was on a whole different 
production timeline and and the set of standards where it was kind of hard to move that train off the rails and so they were kind of like i i guess we'll let you make you make movie like you've made us enough money and in hollywood if you make money that's that's really really all that matters um but you have to like they just gave her in the contract all these stipulations like you have to turn it in on this day you have to stick to this budget and like any 15 percent over the budget will be taken out of your fee all these things to really cover their ass and she just like steamrolled right over it she was was just like "Mm, no i mean i think the famous thing about it it is how the budget ballooned to like i think it was like a one point million or 1.8 million budget and it it went went to like four point something pretty quickly um and she shot over i can't remember how many feet of film but it was like double what they shot for gone with the wind so according yeah so according three times as much as gone with the wind (laughs) right it was according to wikipedia it was it was a 1.8 million dollar budget that went to 4.3 and if she shot 1.4 million feet of film Almost three times as much as a shot for Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Which, those are like Terrence Malick numbers. Um, yeah, that rules. <laughs> it's pretty Sounds awesome. Like lunatic in the best Though, though what's crazy, and you know, I, w- this is just me coming in because I had no context, is I was watching this and I was like, this makes a lot of sense to me. This is like a gritty, grubby movie. You know, it takes place in like, I don't know, six different locations. It's all at night, so it's easy to do interiors. Like, this must have been cheap as shit to make. <laughs> like, this all makes sense if you're making a cheap movie. Like, this is like, and, and I kind of loved that about it. And then I read that and I was like, what the shit happened? <laughs> like, how is I that mean, even- the thing about interiors is funny too, because like, yeah, you'd think they'd cut costs. And of course, like, no, we're only going to shoot everything at night even the interiors they're like what are you talking about that's crazy She's like, i just think that the actors will act differently if they're doing it at night even if it's inside it's like come on you're so over budget oh my god and it was just yeah like i was just watching the movie and i was like no this makes sense it's like a low budge kind of you know gritty crime drama thing and then just reading that i was like oh well now nothing makes sense to me anymore <laughs> I feel like there's a one act uh, play texture to it as well. Like it's, it's very interesting that like, I I mean, I I kind of knew it wasn't based on the stage, but at least as far, you know, beyond all of the different locations they, they go to. I mean, like I could totally see this whole conversation happening in, uh, in Nikki's apartment. Like, like you could totally see a version of this staged in that way. That's really interesting because a thing that I hadn't known when I first saw it, and I, I think I only found out maybe like a month ago, was that I, I did know that this was one of her oldest scripts, and it was something that she had been working on since the 50s um, when she was at the Compass Players Theater in Chicago where she might, met Mike Nichols. And so I knew it was very, very old, but what I didn't know was that it actually started as a one-act play um and there's this really there's this really interesting lecture that i found she never gives public appearances and some harvard film organization in in 2010 aired 
they did the screening of this and Ishtar and somehow they got her to come and audio of it was available somewhere. And, and she's talking about the movie and she's saying like, well, yeah, this started as a one act because when they were doing improv routines um, at the compass, it was still very new and they were still working things out. So every now and then they would just like run out of material and they needed like one act to have sort of on hand as just like, for emergency purposes. And she thought, well, okay, I know guys who could do this act pretty well, who could do gangster acts. So like, what can I do with two guys who can do a gangster act and then, and no scenery. And then I guess as it grew, she was kind of like, oh, well now that I have the opportunity to possibly make this into a film, what would I do if I could do it? Um, If I could take this, this two person one act thing and fill it in with scenery and props and different location changes. And, but I see what you mean. Like I'd be fascinated to know what the initial like bubble of it was. Like if there was one scene in particular that stayed the same or like how it, how it grew into what it became from, from one little sketch. It's, it's weird to think about Mike Nichols too, in the sense of uh, did he write uh, "Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf"? I'm I'm trying to look that up uh, as we're speaking, but like it, you can certainly see some um, some analogs in, in terms of, of structure. Uh, I, I'm I apologize. I, I'm not sure if uh, my timing. Uh, so "Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf" was 1966, which is not to say that like. Elaine was copying him or anything like that. Or I guess that's Edward Albee who did the story. But either way, like I could totally see a version of Mikey and Nikki to bring it to a specific movie that was structured like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Um, and, you know, like that I'm just getting more and more drunk in that apartment and <laughs> that relationship just falling apart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. I can see that. I find it interesting that it would have begun as a as a written piece. I, it's just weird because you know you ask that question like did that did that remain like did that first written part like find its way into this movie, and I just I, my mind is blown <laughs> as it has been since I learned about it that she you know like basically like left the cameras running after the scripted scene ended and just like encouraged improvisation and uh, you know according to one thing um apparently they left the set and she left the camera rolling and a new camera operator said cut and may was rightfully pissed because that's a director's (laughs) job and he said that they left the set and she said yeah but they might come back (laughs) and so i just and again like if you if you if I like what 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 is what is four point three divided by one point eight? You do two and a third times your initial budget, and you shoot three times as much film as was shot for Gone with the Wind. I just like how I want. I sometimes wonder how much of that extra stuff you have to use for it not to feel like. A waste you know like if if you then use like 98 percent of scripted scenes um like do you feel like it was lost but if you like basically miss the entire script you know is that at the point at which you're like see it all made sense and like i'll be clear just up front <laughs> i loved this movie this movie's great and unfortunately 
in watching this movie, I was like, mm, yeah, nope. If this one friend of mine was still alive, this is definitely the type of situation he'd get me into. Or like, oh yeah, I'm I'm still waiting for this other friend of mine to call me up in a situation like this. Like, there were moments in this film where I'm like, I've been here. I've been like, you know, two o'clock in the morning driving with a friend who's suddenly like, you know what we should do? <laughs> we should go to our high school and we should go like, you know, just like dig a hole in the middle of the football field and cry. And it's just like, uh... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, man. That feels like uh, that feels like weekend material. It is a Wednesday. <laughs> like maybe we should not do that. Uh, specifically, yeah. and you know, this is again. And I, I just wish that I could like see the shooting script because one of the things in this movie that that I really For loved sure. was was the uh, the interplay between the two guys, um, Falk and Cassavetes. Because Cassavetes, as as Nikki at some point says. You know, we like when have we ever used the gate to go into a cemetery? And Falk is like, why would you say like you make us sound like we're cemetery people? Like, <laughs> well, like the funny thing is, there definitely is some improvisation happening, but a lot of it sticks really close to the script. And I, I think it's like that dynamic between the way they make it seem like it's improv is, I think that's the strength of. Falk and Cassavetes as actors who are also like really, really tight friends. Yeah. I mean, if you look at all of their other films together too, it's like, it, it's interesting in that like they, they just have a way of reading the lines that sound like there's no way this could be scripted. And then you look at the shooting script and you're like, what the, f-? like, <laughs> what? This was what? Like, cause yeah, I also thought like when I first saw it, I was like, yeah, this seems like, like they improv, like they improvised a lot of this. Why yeah. wouldn't they? Because I just, I like you again. Just, that's that is such a true to life scene. Like I have had, like I, I. This, it was never said to me, but if a, if a certain friend of mine had ever said, "When have we ever used a gate to get into a marina?" <laughs> I would have been like, "Yeah, no, you're right. We've only been to a marina three times, but each time we hopped the fence because it was midnight." Like, do they owe you two hundred dollars as well, Brent? Oh, at least, but this is one of the dead ones, so I'm never getting it back. (laughs) When you're that young, you know, I don't even know how to, how to like dictate how much we owed one another. Like, you know, he bought me a sandwich. I sprung for the beer one time, you know, so like, who knows? It it adds up. It's a, it's a melee when you're like in college. You're just going off of, like, the sensation of having done a favor. Like, no one's keeping track of money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, no, I, I I got that. I just, I want to, the one thing I want to say is, like, I, I think what's really interesting about this is, like, you know, I wouldn't say, to go back weirdly, I, I don't mean to belabor who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, but that's not something where I think Mike Nichols has a real great sense of direction that is very much like an actor's movie to me. And I don't think like Mikey and Nikki has two great performances at the center, but like you guys are totally right. It's this weird tension between like an improvisation and someone who is like deeply in in control of what you're seeing. And then like the balancing act of that, you know, whether you want to consider when they go to Ned Beatty, like whether, uh, 
there are oddly three DPs on this film, but I love the way this uses soft focus. I love the way when you're looking straight on everyone, it's always uh, framed in shadow. But then Mm -hmm. when you look at like peripherally, it's, like it's like almost overexposed to an to a sense like like this is a movie that it's it's odd how much of it feels like it's again being like um created in front of you but like the the strictures it's within like when it chooses to change location all of that like feels really really like calculated and smart and like accumulates like you know like and you can see i I think even better is like you can chart the different feelings uh mikey is having based on location like by the time he's in the bus he starts to realize oh we've known each other for 30 years you remember my brother you remember my dad like Mm -hmm. it, it like it's it's really fascinating how you seem to you keep seeing him going from business to personal to almost trying to rationalize his own behavior like it's it's a really like i I don't know i I thought it was like a really beautiful emotional arc but by the time we got to the end and i didn't realize how well it was done until the end if that makes sense like it snuck up on me it's maybe the better way to put that no yeah i think that i think that makes sense it definitely was one of those i think like you said that snuck up on me too because i think watching it i kind of i think i took it at face value just like knowing what i knew about it i was like oh it's just gonna be like two guys like it's a it's a gangster movie like i didn't expect there to be the emotional depth to it that there is and i think it, it is fun that like <clears throat> mikey has to like discover that because like at this point it's pretty clear that nikki is like the knucklehead that he has to keep bailing out of shit like <laughs> nikki seems sure. like he's made a long series of bad decisions and and so like yeah there comes a point when you're like this isn't a friend this is a goddamn burden this is a millstone around my neck <laughs> and then you start to wonder why that person is even still with you and then, you know, they'll say something and it's like, oh, right, because you're the only person who knew my brother that I, like, still have any connection to. Like, Nikki even says, like, you know, it, it proves the past is real because, like, we remember the things, the same things. And you need that. Otherwise, you could start to think you're going crazy, which uh, actually makes me think of the fact that uh, I think I've mentioned on this podcast before. There is a girl from, like, my middle school days who no one else remembers. And it does make me feel crazy. <laughs> And uh, one of my friends who is dead is probably one of the only people who would have remembered her. And um, so can't get any confirmation from him. And so, yeah, it's uh, having the the movie kind of build to that. Like, that's one of the like, it's that's why it's crazy that like there's this concept of like the improvisation and everything else going on, because like it does feel very tightly constructed and very well written and obviously well acted and the and the direction the editing just like it's all it's all really like amazing like just the way that it cuts between two different people on the phone in a way that you don't know if they were talking to each other or if it's just two people who would be on the phone at the same time it it really helps with this like paranoid feeling 
that the movie's kind of building up. And, um, but again, that's one of those things where I was watching and I was like, this is so tight. This is so well written. Like, <laughs> clearly, this was all done because it's on a budget. And to retroactively find out that all everything else is like just maddening to me. And I think that that actually says a lot about her skill because if you heard like this movie went over two times its budget and shot X amount of film, which is not normal, by the way, um, you know, it's because every every once in a while I'll, I'll sh- like throw out that this is how many feet of film they shot. And my mother or like my friend will say something like, how much is that normal? Like, is or is that less? Is that less than a normal amount? It's like, no, it's a shit ton. <laughs> um, it's just it's 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 crazy that it comes together this well. Like, it's 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 really quite masterful. And um, yeah, I uh, obviously like I felt a lot of engagement with this movie just because I'm like, uh, I got some Nickies, man. I know a few Nickies. <laughs> But it, even just as a as a pure story, it's it's super it's super good, and and the way that it it builds that emotional arc is so good. I will say that I'm happy that I did not read this poster that's on IMDb because it says the last sequence is one of the most harrowing images that modern film has ever given us. <laughs> Thank oh, you, God. Stanley Kaufman. Thank you for the spoilers. New Republic. <laughs> i will i that is a thing that i sort of miss from like old school you know hollywood is like you know the the final 15 minutes will leave you breathless (laughs) and the trailers that like basically show you the entire movie you're like okay cool yeah a man a woman trailer a bank heist a stunning betrayal you know it's just like it tells you the whole movie it's amazing but as long as they got the guy with the voice talking about it it's, it's it's totally fine. fine. I remember oh. um, listening to the last podcast on the left when Mother was coming out, and they would read uh, ad copy for Mother. And Mother's the only movie that I can. I'm sorry, Michael. By the way, that I'm talking about Mother. Um, it's, it's fine. <laughs> Mother's one of the only movies that I can remember even having something close to that because, like, they would say, like, you know, the ending is like one of the most controversial and whatever, and it was something like actually talking about like the way this movie ends is like in the guaranteed. ad copy right in the ad like, not copy even a critic or anything right exactly it was like the the That's studio weird. acknowledged that like this is a thing but like that's the thing that movies had done i think uh there was a um there was a there was a, a demi movie that had that on the poster it's like the the only thing crazier than the first 75 minutes is the last 15 you know <laughs> something wild (laughs) what was that rachel getting married (laughs) yes it was rachel getting married michael (laughs) i mean that fits (laughs) what movies of his wouldn't that more depressing (laughs) it was it was ricky and the flash (laughs) is it really no it wasn't jesus that would be funny though Okay, I could see like seven doing that or like, you know, the, the usual suspect. Like there's some movies, like even the ones I like that hinge so much on that final. Okay, wait. Review. So it's it's Last Embrace and the poster is uh, him. He's He's got a hold of a woman. She looks like she's about to fall into Niagara Falls. 
And it says, it begins with an ancient warning. It ends at the edge of Niagara Falls. In between, there are five murders. Solve the mystery or die trying. This looks amazing. <laughs> what? How have I never heard of this? I don't know, because it's probably not very good. I mean, it's got five murders in it. That's the thing, though. I mean, like, now that I know that, I'm on board. <laughs> I'm there for it. Uh, I, I, I mean... It, it should be said to uh, Brand and, and Carrie. Uh, please correct me if I'm if I'm wrong about this, but like Ishtar is kind of on the level of like Heaven's Gate in terms of huge things that went super over budget, even in a way like all time films, like uh, sorry flops that went way over budget. I guess is what I should say. So it's like this kind of <laughs> this kind of followed Elaine May through her whole directorial career then, didn't it? Totally. It checks and I think it I think it's twofold on this film where it speaks to her I mean the reason why they shot so many feet of film and you know of course there was there were occasions like oh they might come back but a lot of it was like they shot so many takes of things because she's such a perfectionist that like it has to be a certain way in her like the way she sees it in her mind and if it isn't then you're going to do take after take after take and I think on this film it's like you have that combined with Cassavetes who's also a perfectionist and then on this film was basically like I can deal with a lot of shit like I can deal with this being really low budget I can deal with you know a they kept firing camera people and at one point he was he was actually the dp and shooting things and he's like i can deal with all of that but the one thing i can't take is if i'm bad in a scene so if i'm bad in a scene i'm gonna do another take even if you think i'm good in the scene like you have those two forces colliding and it's just like of course nothing can get done because everyone (laughs) is so focused on of course like you would just have this massive amount of of material because everyone is like trying to get it just right meanwhile Ned Beatty's just there like having a coffee (laughs) (laughs) chilling out I I love how he complains like he's just like I could have gone for the three easy I could have gone for the three done deals but instead I went for what I thought was going to be an easy and like (laughs) Mikey's just right there and he just continues to complain about (laughs) it's like He's like, like, he's, I, like the, he's the only hitman I've ever heard who's like cu- curious about his own job security too. <laughs> just like, uh, you know, they're just not calling as much as they used to, or something like that. It's just like, yeah, I guess at a certain point, he's like, I got three guys, and you know, I, I haven't expanded my business. <laughs> like, like, it's just like it's, it's, but it's it's really perfect. I mean, you already spoke about the the phone call. It should be said that um, it's it's revealed to us. I'd say in the first ten minutes that he's very obviously setting up. It's extremely early in the film. Like it, it doesn't leave any doubt that Mikey is involved with this hit. Yeah, which I have to like wonder is it like. The way that I read it is like, is it trying to make you think maybe over the course of the night he's going to take it back or like 
have some change of heart like are you supposed to emotionally invest in like the goodness of this the inherent goodness of this character like no he couldn't possibly follow through with it and that's like i don't know that's the that is the the quandary that i have watching it i mean did you think anything similar or different or hmm personally i I think the I didn't. Go, I didn't ahead, know. What to, I didn't know what to think at first. I was like, first I thought like, oh, he's totally like selling out his friend. But then like, you know, why would he be here at all? Maybe like it's out of empathy. But then I was like, oh, he's telling his wife stuff, and then his wife is telling the guy. Maybe his wife is just like being played. Can you get a crayon from me? <laughs> a Crayola, yes. A Crayola, yeah. <laughs> oh my god. I, I think the closest I got was on, I'll go back to the bus. Like, I, I, I think, I, I love, by the way, that Falk starts, um, like, he's pretty neat at the beginning of the movie, and he just continues to get disheveled as the movie goes along. Um, and, like, it, on that bus, when he's talking about, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get a plane, we'll get a train, like, just as he, he's kind of, like, rattling off options in a way that like he's trying to stave off his own decision. But I, I, I think it's a really interesting question that you, that you say that Carrie, cause I think, I, I, I think they definitely want you to think it's uh, amb- ambiguous, but I, I do kind of wonder if at some point this was going to become something else, but, you know, just become a road movie or something with with these two who, you know, might inevitably kill each other, but would at least get away from uh, from uh, Ned Beatty. <laughs> yes, there'd be a whole cinematic universe, the Mike and Nikki cinematic universe, <laughs> where Nikki just goes places and gets into fights and Mikey is on the edge and he's just like, oh, God, why? Why do you have to do it, Nick? Because Nikki's really going through some shit in this movie. He seems as though he's spoiled. There was there was literally a point where I was like, "Wouldn't it be funny if if doing all this was Nikki's attempted suicide? <laughs> like, what if he did this knowing that the mob would put a hit out on him? Like, what? Like, you know, there's a part of like you know suicide by cop or something, but it's like suicide by mob. It's like I'm just gonna I mean, end my life in the craziest way possible. I feel like watching it you kind of think like he has to know on some level and i think like the whole thing too with the whole premise of the film and like why it's i guess it's supposed to be a thing in the mob that like you can only you can only be killed by people who are close enough to kill you so like your best friend is going to kill you so i I, there's part of me watching it that i kind of think like i try to find that moment where he like you think like he oh he knows he knows he's gonna die tonight so he's trying to do it in like a batshit crazy way but I can't ever like pinpoint when it is I I feel like there's a little bit more credence to that idea too uh, Brian in the sense that like to be honest I thought the the fact that his watch was given to him by a father by his father was a fabrication um, because that whole sequence where they're just kind of in the middle of the street and yeah, they, they eventually get into a fight and everything, but like, it's, it, it's, it's really fascinating to me that like, 
there's still things that that Nikki is saying that Cassavetes is saying where he's like, oh, maybe that's true. Like uh, Resnick. Yeah. Resnick doesn't like him or, or he makes him nervous. Like it, it, there is a weird like self-loathing streak that he's pretty ready to buy into. Like judging from the fact where he ends up at Resnick's house and everything w- with Beatty and they're explaining what happened. And, you know, he le- he legitimately asked it. I really thought he was going to say, do you like me? <laughs> I-, I mean, he puts it in a slightly uh, more delicate way, but it's still um, like it, it really. And even when he was talking to his wife, I, I just got a sense that they were outsiders who almost like lucked into knowing someone who would get them into like the cool kids club of gangsters like there's something kind of dorky about mikey and uh yeah aunt annie yeah annie his wife like it was it was kind of endearing to me (laughs) what do you (laughs) i guess i'm curious what do you mean dorky about like just the way that they act like i I don't know. I find it hard to think that that I guess it's just maybe just my bias, but Peter Falk never strikes me as a dork. No, he <laughs> No, I mean he's Columbo. You can't be a dork and be Columbo. But I still thought like I don't know, like uh Mikey's kind of a kind of a, a I don't know. He kind of struck me as a goober. <laughs> He's the like, kind of guy who will apologize square. to the uh, the graves as he walks over them. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean yeah. he he's definitely a little square. And then Annie's a little bit like, oh no, I'm gonna stay up to see the <laughs> see the fun like crime happening outside. Like I, I did find it kind of interesting that she seems to be in the know of who Mikey is, but isn't like in any way bothered by. <laughs> kind of refreshing honestly given like the tropes of you know how you know lorraine bracco and like goodfellas or you know uh edie falco or a a lot of gangsters as i think about it um like their whole interaction just felt so like not only that they were square but they were just like outsiders here and without Nikki, like, despite that Mikey introduced Nikki to those crime bosses, like, I, I don't know. I, I just got uh, I just got a very interesting vibe in terms of when you when you were talking about whether he was trying to commit suicide. Like, there's a certain last writes last supper quality to a number of these sequences but i think i'd only seen it that way while watching the film as uh on nikki's side you know like when he goes to nelly when he goes to jan um but like i don't know i i don't know if mikey is only preparing to say goodbye uh to nikki like he kind of seems like his life is is over to an extent too which i kind of feel like in a way it is if you're if you were saying goodbye to it's like a part of his life that is over i mean if you are parting ways with 
like we said, like we were talking about before, like the people who know all of these stories, like that's like a huge chunk of, I, I get the feeling that he's trying to, to grieve the process of like losing that entire chunk of his life of like this one person who knows all these stories, even if he is now more of a burden than a friend. I'm curious, Michael, you said that you thought that the movie was on Nikki's side or that there was a moment when you thought the movie was on Nikki's side. No, I didn't think it was on Nikki's side. Uh, I, I was rather saying that I felt like, um, sorry, there was such, there's such a finality to all of these scenes with Nikki, but I hadn't thought about Mikey having a finality to those scenes as well, other than just in the fact that he thinks he's about to lose Nikki. Like there's something that, I don't know. I, I think there's something just very, um, Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm going uh, too far uh, with your suicide comment, too, in, in a way I can't <laughs> back up. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll yeah, I'll just say that uh, the the finality of, of so many of these scenes and the the urgency that kind of like ramps up um, and is often like reluctantly accepted is is really interesting to me. I mean, that. That Nelly scene is, um, you know, it's it's really tough to watch, but it's nonetheless kind of mesmerizing in its <laughs> in, in its cruelty I, in a in a way. I mean, I'll just like you know my my whole my whole read of the suicide thing again may be impacted by the friends that I have who remind me of Nikki. Um, one particular instance comes to mind. Uh, I don't think I was, I think I just heard the story from my friends who were in the car. But so a friend of mine is in the car. They're all drunk. They just went to Wendy's and he gets back onto the, um, like the state highway. Um, and he's on the wrong lanes. He went down the wrong lanes. It was like one o'clock in the morning. So there weren't a lot of cars, but that's just not where you want to be. And so everyone's yelling at him like, oh my God, get back in the right lanes. Get like top the median get back in the lanes we're supposed to be in and his retort was to turn around and scream at everyone in the car why are you afraid to die (laughs) and so when i see someone in a movie like this acting this irrationally and um you know deciding like i don't want to go to see a movie i want to go to see my mom like i just have flashbacks to my friends like that where it's just like oh yeah like there is a certain kind of mania that comes with a self-destructiveness and every once in a while you get like, I'm going to pick a fight in a bar. And every once in a while you get, I'm going to go try to say goodbye to my mom. And so that's just how I read that it was just like his, I don't know if it was because he already believed that he was dead and there was no hope for himself. Cause if that's the case, then why would he call uh, Mikey or if he did this hoping that it would finally be an end? I don't know. It's a, it's an interest, and that's one of the the driving tensions of this movie. It was just this concept of like, does he even want to get out of this alive? Like, he seems pretty okay with making a scene everywhere he goes and not really laying low. Yeah, that's a an interesting thing to bring up. Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think that's, I don't know. 
Yeah. And that's, again, like one of the things that I really liked about this movie was that that sense of uncertainty and that sense that like there is there is an answer for all of this and God only knows where it's coming from and like what's driving these two. Because it's clear that like this night or a night like it has been a long time coming. And sure. that it's it's I only think. upon like actually having to live through it that Mikey's like, ah, crap, this guy is like the big tide of my life. Yes. Like he's a whole, he's a whole, he's not even like chapters. It's like if you got a novel that's like in books, it's like the first three books of my life are in this guy. But he's and, uh, also clearly important for, for as much as like, uh, you know, Cassavetti or as Cassavetti's like insults him and, you know, says all of these things that other people are thinking. He's also very clearly matters more than, uh, you know, um, then Mikey says, like, oh, you don't answer my calls, ever, uh, you know, uh, after three months and things like I, I felt like going back to that Jan sequence where Nikki goes there one last time to say, you know, uh, to say hi to his daughter and to say bye to Jan, sort of like I, I think it's so interesting that she's like she immediately goes to where's Mikey Mikey can help you as in like it's very clear that Mikey has been that lifeline you know no matter what like whatever period of of life they're in as as you're saying Brian it's not a chapter it's it's a recurring (laughs) it's a recurring uh you know uh a millstone or albatross Am I alone in having I mean, friends like this? Like, I just I just needed to, because I'm talking a lot about, like, personal experience, and I think I just realized that neither of you has done the same, so I'm like, I'm the only person who's got some Nickies in their past and in their life? I mean, not anymore, but yes. Did yours, like, <laughs> leave entirely, and, like, you, or did they die? Like, what, what happened to your Nickies? I kind of went away. Okay. Uh, like, they were a neighbor. And I went away to college and then, you know, we just kind of got separated. But like they were definitely the ones who were closest to get me get me into trouble (laughs) the most time. Like I was a pretty uh, I don't know. I I was a a pretty boring kid for the most part, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) as as you can imagine. Like I I'm not a I wasn't a big troublemaker. Um, or firebrands, uh, <laughs> but some of my neighbors definitely were, and yeah, I mean, I don't know. In in hindsight, I'd call some of the things that they would get me into toxic, <laughs> as in I could have gotten arrested for a few of them. <laughs> Jeez. Um, I would say that absolutely not to this extent, but I, I think. <laughs> I've definitely had, yeah, toxic friends who, like, you're kind of like, I know this person isn't good for me, but I'm going to keep hanging out with them anyway. Or, like, like with Mikey and Nikki, it's like, oh, well, like, weighing your options. Like, this person knows you have this emotional investment in this other person. Like, they know these stories about me, and I know these things about them. But I don't know. I mean, I... It's interesting in thinking about this movie in terms of friendship and in terms of 
betrayal because I think that this is it's a theme that comes up in all of Elaine's movies she seems to be really fascinated by betrayals by people who are very very close and I think that's something that happens a lot in real life that people don't want to acknowledge in a way that like in Elaine May's world as in the real world but you don't see many comedies about it at least like your husband is going to try to kill- <laughs> oh no I guess not in the real world <laughs> when I say <laughs> your husband isn't trying to kill you but like maybe not that extreme but like your husband might marry you for the for the wrong reason or you might marry your husband for the wrong reason or you know you might somebody meets somebody else um while they're still in a partnership with someone or like in this situation you have two best friends and it just seems like in Elaine May's world there's a part a partnership between two people is never ever equal um and I think it's interesting the ways that she teases out the complexities of that because I absolutely see that in real life and in my own life and my own friendships where it's kind of like yeah it is like maybe not as extreme as Mikey and Nikki but like who is the Mikey in this situation and who is the Nikki in this situation and and who derives what power from that I think you could make another point too about individually I think one of them you know or, or I, I think both of them think that the other person <laughs> is is more stable. Like, like, yes. like it's kind of fascinating that, um, yeah, I, I mean, they both don't have, I, I mean, they have self-awareness, but they don't seem, um, you know, set in their understanding of their self. I, I mean, it's it's interesting that so much of this hinges on, the childhood friends. And I'm just thinking about the weird thing of, um, so like I've, I've talked about this uh, a lot on here, but like, uh, so my, my dad passed now like five years ago, maybe it's terrible. I don't know that offhand, but I, I mentioned that because like, you know, I've made a couple friends in the last couple years in the city and like, they will never meet my dad like like that's a weird thing that like childhood friends that i don't talk to anymore i could go to them and they'd be able to like recount memories like like that thing is so strong and like such a tunnel vision like because you're not thinking about any of the other bad parts or like if you start really digging into that you're like oh, I'm not friends with this person because of this, but they were present for so many things, so they so they matter. Like, it, it, there's something there's something really weird about that and, like, gives that partnership, like, it, it can't ever go away, no matter how much time, you know, passes. Because even if you don't keep up with someone, you, you have that foundation. I, I apologize if that's very obvious, but it's just making me think a little bit uh, about that that strange interaction. There's there's two movies that that really spring to mind when I think about um, like kind of understanding toxic friendships and the way that like people are. Um, so the first one is is stupid as shit. It's a hot tub time machine. 
Um, <laughs> bear with okay. me for bear with me for one second. Sure, I'm so, <laughs> so one of the guys, uh, I should have looked this up when I realized I was going to have to bring this up. Um, I, I think it's Rob Cordry. Yeah, yeah. he he uh, like falls asleep drunk in his uh, garage with his car running and people think it's a suicide attempt. And the doctor says, um, oh, to all his friends who show up at the hospital, like, is he your friend? And Craig Robinson says, it's like he's an asshole, but he's our asshole. <laughs> and, you know, that movie is pretty dumb, but that's a pretty, like, insightful line. Because there is a moment where you're like, I don't even know, but I, I do feel some level of respect. Like, I do own this guy, because, like, God only knows where else he would go. You're his keeper. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then similarly, T2, uh, the sequel to Train Spotting, um, has a lot I of that. I say Terminator 2, and I yeah. was like, I am waiting to hear this. Nope. T2 Train Spotting <laughs> is is really heavy into that. Um, just like every every time Renton talks to to Spud or Sick Boy in that movie, and and the way that like people observe the relationship between Renton and Sick Boy. Where in that it, it really is like not clear who the Mikey or the Nikki would be. Like they're it's such such codependency, and it's like they give each other meaning, and and movies like that will always have a, a strong place in my heart because I have been in relationships like that, and it's um it's always fun to find them in the movies, not those kinds of relationships, um and to see. The ways that they're observed. And I think Elaine May here, you know, really gets to the heart of some some masculine friendship nonsense. <laughs> masculine friendship Absolutely. nonsense is, is wonderful. <laughs> it's a great way of like saying Elaine May didn't say this, but she might as well have said, like, these guys need to go to therapy. They need to have a mediator with their friendship. Right, it's it's there is a level of there's a level of inertia. You're just like I don't know. We're friends because one of us we keep we need each other, and there's not going to be a moment where one of us is going to look at the other and say like, "Hey, man, I, we can't do this anymore." Like I have only done that with one friend in my life, and it was just the most awkward thing because it did feel like I was breaking up with him, and he took it about as poorly as a person could take a breakup. I like told him that he was a social liability and toxic and I had to get away from him or I would have no other friends left. And he <laughs> was deeply distressed. He was like, I thought we were like, I thought we were like really good friends. I'm like, you're a good friend to me. You're a shit human being to literally everyone else in my life. And I don't want you around anymore. That's but that did not go well. <laughs> I mean, it's a, yeah, it's not, you don't want to have that conversation to begin with, but like, that's definitely the conversation that Mikey probably should have had with Nikki at some point. <laughs> I was just lucky. I'd only known the guy for like a year. You know, if it had been sure. one of my friends who I'd been friends with since childhood, I probably would have been like, uh, yeah, but like, you know, at what point, like, how do you, how do you <laughs> kick someone out of your life like that? I'm used to people just falling away naturally. <laughs> sure. But if this person keeps coming to me, but then you have to think, it's like, what are they coming to you for? Do they have, like, awesome tickets to a concert? Or do they have a new problem <laughs> they need you to help fix? 
And unfortunately, the Nickies in a in a person's life will always just have a new problem to fix. But it makes you feel it makes you feel good, you know. Especially if you have Christ complex like me, you're just like, yay, I get to help another person. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I understand my own foibles. I get it. I am way too invested in trying to help people. I got back from bringing my dog to the hospital, rescued a squirrel from my cat, and then kept it for three days trying to nurse it back to health. I can't let bad things happen around me. <laughs> are, are you atoning for something? Did you did you did you do anything that you you if feel like life, you need to uh, get right? If with, my life was with, a short uh, story, something? it would definitely like the my my obsessive need to try to save wild animals would definitely be that. <laughs> um, I have I have I have tried and failed to save like three birds, two rabbits, and like two squirrels. And what's crazy is that so I pick up this squirrel. And I realize that it's not lacerated. It appears to be fine, except for the fact that its back legs and its tail don't work. And so I'm like, oh, shit, I think this squirrel is paralyzed from the waist down or whatever, you know, the squirrel equivalent of a waist is. So I put it in a box um, with a bunch of towels and I put in like a pile of bird seed and I put in a bowl for water and I keep it. And then last night I was, um, I was like, I can't do this. Like, I just like, what am I going to do with this squirrel? Like, I just got to let him go. He was not happy in the box. He was constantly (laughs) chittering and hissing in the box. What was the, what made you realize you needed to let this squirrel go? Cause he was just chittering (laughs) and hissing. And I was like, I, like he, I, I can't see myself, uh, taming him, you know? like it's just so there was a and and he wasn't and if he was gonna have died from like internal injuries it would have happened already right so i was just like i can't kill him i can't keep him i'm going to let him go and i'm just gonna let nature take over because he's not happy in the box maybe he will at least like be happy crawling across the ground and like doing something so like i just i i took the lid off the box and he was in there in the corner and he like hissed at me and I said, look, I literally spoke out loud to this squirrel. This is not hyperbolic. I said, look, I don't know what to do for you. I don't know where to take you. You're not happy in this box. I don't think you're going to make it, but I can't keep you here. You've got to. I'm just going to let you go. And so I tipped the box over on its side and he crawled out and his back legs had begun to work again after like 2 days of absolute immobility he wasn't like super spry but they worked and his tail twitched and i literally i was standing in the middle of my lawn it's like 10 o'clock at night and i said oh my god your legs are working <laughs> and then i watched him climb a tree so I don't know if he had like swelling that was compressing his spinal column or something and it went down. But so this was the first time that I ever successfully rehabbed an animal. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Am I atoning for something? Do Is there some dark secret in my life that's like driving me to this? You know, am I Will Graham and these are my stray dogs? Like who can say? But so anyway... <laughs> Are you also finding this distressing? (laughs) Um, Surprisingly, no, because I feel like it's a quarantine trend for some reason, like to rehab squirrels. I I, I don't. I will say that I've been doing this for years. I've seen like six people 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> I was going to say, I've seen like six people on social media being like, this is my squirrel. I adopted it. And then <laughs> I bought a bird feeder for it. And I kind of like, is this what's happening? I, I mean, seems pretty odd that everyone's doing it right now. No, I, just, I don't I, know. I, I just, I guess there's like, there is some part of me that's like, you know, it might be attached to like my, one of my Nickies, you know, killing himself and me being like, well, now I have to try to like save as many other things as I can to make up for it to prove that I'm a good person. Cause it's like, I wasn't there for him then, but look, I saved this fucking squirrel. How bad can a man be who cares so much for nature? And then another part might just be that I watched too many Disney movies as a kid. And I just really like animals. Like, you know, who knows? But this, yeah, like this is the, the first animal in like six years that I've actually been able to like bring back to some level of release. So you have a failed pro bono animal hospital. It, yeah, at this point, it's more <laughs> of a hospice. <laughs> like I saved, I saved a bird once and someone was like, what are you going to do with it? I'm like, this bird isn't going to make it. And they're like, well, what do you? So what are you going to do with it? I was like, I've wrapped it in a towel. I've got it in a box in my living room and I'm just going to sit here with it while it dies. <laughs> so that it's not alone and cold outside. I have a broken individual. Um, not sure why this is coming up. Well, actually, no, I know exactly why this is coming up on the Mike and Nikki episode. Like I said, there's a lot of there's a lot of psychological uh, shit going on in this movie. And um, looking back on friendships and the way that we respond to people in our lives and the way that we handle things and find our own sense of self-value is all wrapped up in this movie. On a lighter uh, note, uh, Casper <laughs> Betty's reminded me of Kramer in this. <laughs> there's a point when when they're like when when Nikki's like, if you think that's going to happen, let's switch coats like let's switch jackets like let's switch watches and i was just i was watching them do it and i was like oh my god they do look strikingly similar <laughs> and thank god one of them is peter falk so like i'll never have to question who is who because there's just something about peter falk and his slouch that you can pick him out of a crowd oh my <laughs> are you okay michael I'm still reacting to, I mean, I, mean, I guess it's, a, it's you're attempting a, a good deed. I just, uh, I, I think it's more like, okay, so if I took in an ailing <laughs> animal, I have okay. no idea what the fuck I would do <laughs> to help it. So like, like that sounds... That, that sounds absurd. Like, I would almost certainly uh, bring it closer to death than than life. That's a that's a sentence. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I, I yeah, I, I don't know. I, I have a, a vet friend, so maybe I would reach out to them. <laughs> Uh, maybe i don't know one i i you know it's 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 possibly fruitless i mean like i think about how many squirrels and stuff and like birds and mice i see that are killed by cats or like cars every day and i'm just like uh there's another one but for whatever reason when i come upon the act happening i have to intervene do you do this with bugs too uh no no i don't uh maybe spiders 
Wait, what do you mean with bugs? Like, I'm not about to like. <laughs> this is so off topic. I guess it's just <laughs> like if someone's about to step on a bug, I'm not like, why are you going to step on that bug? But like, if I see a bug in my house, I don't kill it. I try to get it outside. Yeah, I'm gonna kill it. <laughs> my daughter now loves bugs because that whole thing backfired on me. She used to be so terrified of bugs that if she saw a piece of lint on the floor that looked like a bug, she wouldn't leave her room. And so one day I caught a bug in a in a box, in a plastic like Tupperware box, and I made her hold it. And now she thinks they're the coolest things on earth. So she wants to go out and she wants to find bugs. She loves spiders. There was a spider in her room today. And she's like, you have to get the spider. And I was like, okay, I'll take it outside. She's like, no, we need to keep it. And I was like, oh, Christ, we're not keeping a spider. <laughs> So I don't know, all of this, does this make me a Mikey? This has to make me a Mikey and just all the animals in my life are the Nickies, right? Yeah, but you don't want to be a Mikey. (laughs) Don't be a Mikey or a Nicky. No, Michael, you have to be one or the other. I was going to say, like, neither of these characters are are likable. No, they're not likable and they're not people we should aspire to be. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, you fall between one or the other. I'll be the bus driver. <laughs> M.M. at Walsh! Yeah, yeah. I saw that. I was like, oh shit, it's M.M. at Walsh. I, I do have a legitimate question. I, I didn't know what to make of it in the film. Uh, I'm curious, what do you guys make of uh, Mikey and Nellie's conversation where he's saying, you watch the news? I, I mean, it's before he tries to make a, a move on her. But... Um, like there's a whole conversation where he's like entranced by the fact that she's like intelligent in, in his eyes. Like it was, it was, it was a strange scene. I, I didn't know what to, what, what to make of. Like you know, obviously, uh, or I, I, or or did you guys just kind of interpret that as um, Mikey again feeling like Nikki always gets everything i'm just curious whether you guys had any feelings about that scene i'm gonna let carrie go for this first because i just spent six minutes talking about a squirrel (laughs) i mean i don't in that scene i don't really have a great recollection of that preamble because i i think i just remember the more incredibly uncomfortable (laughs) disturbing parts um which i mean yeah um so it's mikey who says that to her like you you watch the news yeah like after nikki has has hooked up with her mikey comes up and is like oh i hear you like the news like that's great because usually pretty girls don't feel like they have to know things right okay now that that all like is coming back to me yeah it's like part that whole scene is kind of like i don't want to say like black it out but it's very easy for me to only kind of remember the most disturbing moments of it and it's so it's everything about that is so painfully claustrophobic and uncomfortable that like i guess i can imagine him I, i think my read on it would probably be like it's uncomfortable because yeah he does sort of think he's got a shot with her and like this Mm -hmm. is his way of being nice but it 
that's not really nice because you did the whole I don't know I mean that whole scene is just that whole scene is just like so fucked up in so many ways and and brilliantly fucked up I should say like it's supposed to make you feel like you want to climb out of your skin yeah because because you know Mikey hasn't been a great guy but he doesn't he feels a little bit more together than Nikki and then he uh he's a real awful piece of shit in that scene yeah Michael as far as your question I feel like he's just inept as shit at flirting (laughs) and he thinks that calling her smart just because she enjoys the news and likes to like what did she i think her her statement was i like to know what's going on and stuff yes um you know he's like okay right yeah so if i just tell this broad that she's smart uh then i can do whatever i want right because like nikki's over there and he's a walking fucking trash fire and he got with her uh but that's not how it is because mikey just lacks that like weird innate scumbag charisma yeah, it's it's just there's something there's something about that that sequence that was yeah I, I don't know there was something like oddly spiritual about that moment which is weird to say because you know almost all of the scenes actually with women characters in this film are extremely uh, just dis- I should say direct interactions with women are extremely disturbing but like oddly I, I mean I guess you could say this about the whole movie you really get a sense that Mikey and Nikki have history with everyone they go to see. Like you can tell that they've known these people for years. <laughs> they've had ups and downs and uh, you know, but they always come back to each other. Like, like it, it is really uh, Mikey and Nikki's relationship in, in miniature seeing those small interactions with people like Nellie, who, who, by the way, I thought was fantastic in this. And she never acted again after this, oh. at least in films um, from from what I'm I'm seeing on IMDb. I'm not, I'm not sure if she was a theater actress on, or um, I, she's she was actually married to Walter uh, Matthau. Um, but, yeah, I just I found that it, I, I find, um, again, the, those sequences there. Um, like they're incredibly disturbing, but they're also like oddly well-read of toxic people and relationships, which, you know, uh, makes sense. (laughs) So apparently that actress is Carol Grace, who was the inspiration for Holly Golightly? Huh. I don't know how I, she I, or anyone else would feel about knowing that about themselves. Um, that was Capote who yeah. wrote, wrote the, Okay. Wow. Uh, she was on Broadway. She was twice married to Pulitzer Prize winning writer William Sharon over an eight year yeah. period. Wow. Look at that. They tried to make it work a second time. Good for them. <laughs> and then she married Walter Matthau. Yeah. This is amazing. I, Anyway, I mean, which checks and like how she finally ended up in this movie because of the whole new leaf connection. But yeah, that's crazy. Anyway, yeah, she's interesting. (sighs) Another great thing about old movies, just diving into the random history of these people. 
It's amazing. Um, do we have any final thoughts on uh, Mikey and Nikki? Which I just want to give myself a pat on the back for not messing up the title of this movie ever in the entire time that we've done this. Because I was Nikki and Nike. I, <laughs> I thought I was going to say Nikki and Mikey constantly, but I think that the uh, one of the most clever things about this movie is that the names are done alphabetically. So the brain inherently wants to put them that way. I don't know. <laughs> I am bothered because there is an ampersand on the poster and it's Mikey <laughs> and Nikki on IMDb and I will not stand for it. <laughs> no, man, if only I could remember what the title card said, then we'd have a final answer. Sure. I do know that I watched the version that was the Elaine May uh, supervised cut that was from MoMA. Which is, I guess, like an important distinction. I've never, I'm interested in knowing how the two cuts differed, if there was much of a difference, because like the two cuts of Ishtar are pretty similar. I think there's only like a one minute difference. Hmm. So I'd like to know like what, what the version was. I mean, my final thought is I want to know. I, I I just want to know the full story about the two reels of film that were stolen that she over the years has famously been like well someone stole them it wasn't me which I had no idea and it's like oh like, enough time has passed like, just own up to it we all think it's fucking bad I just want to like know that her. full story like they can't arrest you now you're okay we're just impressed That's with you for god's sake yeah <laughs> Oh, the last thing I want to say, I love the jaunty music that comes in during the final uh, chase. <laughs> or, or not really the final chase, but w- when he is uh, with Ned Beatty, when Mikey is with Kenny in the car and they're just going around and there's one time where they're going down an alley and like there's this jaunty, it, it sounds very much like cop TV theme music. And the rest of the film doesn't have that at all. And uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. And I'll just say again, I, I, I watched this on Tubi. It's apparently on the Criterion channel. I highly recommend this movie. I was super impressed with it and really glad that uh, we took this opportunity to talk about it. And um, yeah, I just, just watch it. It's, it's great. It's, it's so good. And the story behind it makes it even more impressive, as I have already said. But that is it for today. Um, Michael Snydell, what are we talking about next week? I think we might be talking about Dick Johnson is dead next week. That or uh, Kajillionaire, which I've heard a lot of talk about from uh, Miranda July. Okay. Uh, so those are two films I've heard a bit about and i have no idea when they're coming out so maybe those (laughs) maybe those maybe something else time will tell we may pull another random movie from the 70s out of our our hat oh you know what i just realized that i didn't bring up that i wanted to say this was released the same year as taxi driver and i feel like aesthetically and like image of of nightlife wise very similar because I want, I wanted to check like who was influenced by whom, you know. And instead, it's like, oh, they were just made 
I don't know. This movie was apparently shot three years before it was released, but yeah, I find that to be interesting. Is Travis and Nikki? Ooh. <laughs> no, I think Travis is a Mikey. <laughs> Carrie, do you have an opinion on if Travis Bickle is a Mikey or a Nikki? I I don't know. <laughs> You did in fifteen years. <laughs> you sound terrified by the question. <laughs> I, it's been a really long time. <laughs> Same. I'm just. I'm gonna uh, without without any explanation. I'm gonna double down. Travis is definitely a Mikey. Um, <laughs> if you would like to support the podcast, back to health. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's. You know, he's. He's. Uh, he thinks that he can help people. You know whether it be Nikki or uh, Jodie Foster. Those people probably don't need this help. Anyway, uh, what was I going to say? Patreon.com slash the film stage show for, yeah, go there to give us your money. And of course we are brought to you by Mubi, M-U-B-I.com slash film stage gets you a free 30 day trial so that you can check out uh, Salon Kitty, which sounds again, pretty (laughs) freaking awesome. And it was again released the same year as the Mikey and Nikki. So you could do a taxi driver, Mikey and Nikki, Salon Kitty triple feature, and it would all be movies from 1976, which might be important to someone. <laughs> Let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and the next time. Carrie Corgan, thank you so much for being our guest. Would you like to tell people where they can find more of your stuff online? Sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter at. Carrie Corgan, C-A-R-R-I-E-C-O-U-R-O-G-E-N. Awesome. I love people who just have their names as their... their it's names. just easy. It's so easy. It's so Very great. Helpful. I mean, unless you have a weird last name like me where you kind of have to spell it out, but like for the most part, it's easy. Yeah, it's the best. Speaking of, Michael Snydell, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Snydell. I, I, I want to say that I changed my display name for the first time ever uh, to something Halloween related. And it's a bad joke. I'll probably get rid of in a bit. But it's Michael Serial Movie Killer Snydell. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that's about right. Um, yeah, on the film stage, I blurbed um, from the east, from Chantal Ackerman. There's a new restoration on Ovid TV, which is definitely a streaming service I knew existed uh, before <laughs> that. And um, I also, last week for The Spool, I reviewed a Disney Plus movie that was absolutely not made for me called The Secret Society of Second Born Royals, which is essentially an X-Men ripoff. And uh, the supervillain kind of has a scheme that involves negative eugenics, but it's not as exciting as that sounds. <laughs> Interesting. Have you heard of this show Utopia? Yes, it's from uh, Jillian Flynn. Yes. Apparently its plot is that people discover a conspiracy that involves a fake pandemic and then the use of a fake vaccine oh. to sterilize people. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Huh. I read an article timing. that was like, this, the timing on this is so bad that you just can't forgive it, you know? 
I, I will plug my uh, my friend Jacob Oler. He did in uh, Los Angeles Times feature about you Utopia this week that uh, is is pretty pretty interesting. Um, I read parts of it and definitely didn't get deep enough to realize that it's about a fake pandemic and sterilization. But I, um, yeah, you can read that. <laughs> yeah, it's a little baddie. I can be found at Brian J. Rowan everywhere. Again, people whose names or their handles unite. Michael Snydell, I think I changed my name once for Halloween. What um, was it? And I changed it to, and this is embarrassing, Brains J. Groan. <laughs> I will, was better than mine. <laughs> I will never do it again. So good, good for everyone who actually saw that when it happened. Um, as Michael said, we are still deciding what we're going to do next week. So I can't redouble uh, and tell everyone what we're doing. But you know, just look out for it. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us, and tune in next time. When you're strange